Today we're talking to Cynthia Chung, who is the president of the Rising Tide Foundation and a writer for Strategic Culture Foundation. Cynthia, welcome to the Space Commune podcast. Thanks for having me. Um, so you, so I came across uh, an article that you wrote earlier this year in January called "What Determines a Limit to Growth," which is a great title, countering the famous book by the Club of Rome called "Limits to Growth." Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and uh, they released that in uh, 1972, and that was pretty much what the World Economic Forum adopted at its very inception, pretty much the year after the World Economic Forum was founded. They introduced the Club of Rome uh, policy outlook. So we're going on, thir- uh, I'm sorry, we're going on 50 years now with these Club of Rome policies that were set up by Limits to Growth, a uh, study done by MIT by Danella Meadows and and colleagues. Jorgen Randers. Jorgen Randers, right. Who's in China now. Who is in China now. He's yeah. heading up the Club of Rome China uh, edition. Yikes, yikes. What do, you, what, do you, what do you think about that, Cynthia? About uh, the Chinese connection you're saying, or? Yeah, well, the, the Club of Rome is trying to influence China now, uh, yes. trying to in- influence the Belt and Road oh. Initiative, um, trying to- steer ecological civilization uh, in a, a very negative direction. Um, Jorgen Randers, who's one of the original authors of Limits to Growth, uh, he's now he's at some university in China, uh, and they've tasked him with presenting to the Chinese government about, with suggestions about how to do ecological civilization. So uh, it's very, very disturbing that they're, you know, they've identified China as the future, um, and they're trying to influence its development now. Yeah, I mean, I, it's 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 not uh, a surprise at all that they would try to um, get China on board with this because China is uh, such a massive um, economic driver that if you want to, I mean, this is the inspiration of the World Economic Forum is to uh, influence world policy, you're going to have to also have China on board with those policies. And if not, then it's not going to look so good for them shaping the the clear, you know, vision that they have. And I guess, you know, one thing I, I would say on this is from my standpoint, I've seen a real um, kind of turn or like change in strategy from the World Economic Forum in the sense that they were uh, promoting people like Harari much more heavily uh, a few years ago, which they seem to have taken a bit of a pause on, not necessarily a step back from. Um, and, you know, Harare was clearly very critical of, of China. There was a lot of, um, you know, negative talk about China. He was speaking at the World Economic Forum, including the Q&A um, that was with Harare after his main presentation, which was very, you know, a negative outlook of, of China. But I think that <laughs> we're going to actually get, I guess, into geopolitics before we talk about energy. But I mean, it makes sense um, because connected. of the yeah, it's all connected because of the Ukraine war situation. Um, this whole thing of what Davos, I think, thought that they were going to have planned out has not worked out because the plan for the Ukraine war, uh, no matter you know whose side you're you're on in, in the situation, was to see an internal collapse of Russia economically. And uh, they were hoping to economically isolate both Russia and China. And there's been other things, too, that has been um, trying to weaken China economically. 
um, through these kinds of uh, economic warfare. But it didn't go as planned. And I mean, some of it was kind of, of silly because Russia is a, a huge uh, weight in like the as an energy provider. Nonetheless, they thought there was going to be, you know, internal unrest in Russia and that uh, Putin was going to be overthrown and that Russia was going to kind of be um, adopted into the the Western framework way of thinking, because there are a lot of uh, Russians, you know, in Moscow that that are catering to that kind of uh, outlook. So that didn't work out. And now there's an energy crisis in Europe, which uh, there was already an energy crisis, but the Ukraine war just like showed how the emperor has no clothes, basically, yeah. and that their system of renewable energy and all this is actually not sustainable. Um, yet Germany is, you know, crazily, last I heard, they're still, if they have not already shut down their last three clear reactors yeah. and Germany is a you know a country that I think they started in 2011 an aggressive policy towards renewables and it's it's been shown to be a, a complete sham because they are completely dependent on so-called dirty uh, fossil fuel energy from other countries and even the hydropower the nuclear power of other countries like France or the Scandinavian countries so it's a complete disaster but they're still continuing to uh, try to project this like false image of success because there's a lot of people with a lot of money who are throwing, um, you know, uh, a ton of money at this, including, you know, Mark Carney, who's involved with the Bank of England, and he's also been involved with uh, the the Bank of, of Canada yep. and is basically trying to, you know, create a situation where you cannot get any kind of investment, you can't get any funding if you're not in renewables. And this is just exacerbating the energy crisis, but they're they're making it sound like this is all Russia's fault, which it yeah. clearly isn't. So in the case of China, and I'll, I'll get, yeah, I realized I was kind of forgetting the first question. I'll, I'll sum it up with one sentence. And then China uh, was, was, was put in a position where it was like, are you going to continue siding with Russia or not? And so uh, Russia and China have decided to uh, continue with this alliance, um, which is also an economic alliance. It's, it's, a, it's, an ex uh, it's an alliance for their continued existence, along with, I would argue, the majority of the world. And, um, and so there is now a situation of panic because if you watch like the, the Davos uh, conference from just like this, this past uh, February or January, it was, I thought very telling because you could tell that the moderators were, were clearly having this kind of, um, you know, they were, they were trying to calm the audience down because there was a clear, unrest <laughs> mm. amongst the people at the stuff because you know this is one year after the ukraine war and it's a shit show and i uh, the, the everything is is tanking nothing is doing well so if you're actually like a somewhat um reasonable rational business person you don't even have to be moral it it doesn't make any sense what's happening right now and uh nobody was was very happy there was very low confidence and it was clear in like several of the big panels i was listening to all of the moderators were clearly trying to um put people at ease for all of the the unrest and all of the the basically cynicism at this point that the west can't actually deliver on the promises that they were making so 
yeah, okay, if you're get, if you're promised that there will be a successful Western hegemony and you want to put all of your money into that, fine. But if the Western hegemony is not working out, why would you not want to work with China? And so that's exactly what's what's happening. And get you know China in with like AI. They you know the World Economic Forum wants to control how AI is implemented in all of these uh, countries that are the leading countries in AI and. Unfortunately, Singapore is one of those countries that has done it. From my knowledge, they're the only country that has been silly enough to allow the World Economic Forum to do this, but they really want China. And I, I do not see China going along with that. Yeah. Well, all the plans are getting foiled because of this new German word I learned, which is Dunkelflaut, which is when the wind doesn't blow for a few weeks. And that, that has foiled all the plans. Is the Dunkelflaut. Dunkelflaut. <laughs> That's so silly sounding. All the plans oh, hinge on no seed. Junkelflaut. <laughs> it all it all hinges on Junkelflaut not happening. Oh wow. It's been happening too much, so the the West is is falling. Wow. Well, I, I let's let's work backwards because that's I, I love the I love that you have both the, the scientific and the geopolitical perspective on all this because that's what you need to understand the full picture now. And this article is great because it walks through it's very scientific. And it, it presents basically the just science that we here in the West are not presented with. Uh, and it's that's why everyone's depressed. <laughs> you know, everyone's like, there's no future. We're all the planet's going to light on fire and we're all going to die, especially on a day like today where we're having all this haze from the um, the the wildfires that are oh, down yeah. from Canada. There's a lot of eco anxiety. A lot of eco anxiety among, today among the guy worship. But if you you have so many great um, scientific points that you walk through in this article that say, wait a minute, actually, things uh, have been progressing in a great direction, and there is a ton of hope for the future. So let's let's uh, go through a few of these. So. What do I have here on my list? Um, dunking, I say you you dunk on the Malthusian model, which um, which does not ac account for qualitative change. Seems like quantity versus quality is this argument that you're getting at, right? Mm -hmm. um, you say that we're increasing. You you point out that we're increasing diversity and efficiency in the biosphere, making an argument about uh, how we've improved upon fruits, vegetables, things like that to make them better right bigger better tastier uh more nutritious um but this idea that we're actually increasing diversity and efficiency in the biosphere that sounds like the exact opposite of what environmentalists say they say we're we're uh destroying the ecosystem and and species are going extinct extinct at a rate that they'll all be gone soon right yes i I mean, there's a there's a lot of fallacy to deal with, like um, in in just what you brought up. But I guess to start with the Malthusian model, for people who are not aware, um, the environmentalist movement and also just the the typical understanding of how evolution, you know, works, you know, through uh, Darwin's work, which then also um, influenced uh, the field of cybernetics. It influenced the, the field of social Darwinism, which contradictory to what people say that Darwin was not, um, you know, supportive of that. He clearly was in his writing. He he was concerned with he, what he himself said was the, um, you know, basically that our race was like being contaminated with, uh, you know, 
lesser traits that um, we didn't want sort of thing. And he compared it to horse breeding, you know, that no no seen species would allow their worst to uh, reproduce, sort of quote. I'm paraphrasing, but it's in, right. uh, in many of our articles, uh, Matt Eretz and, and mine, that where we've repeated that that statement. And he, he said himself that he was uh, directly influenced by Malthus. So the, the problem with Malthus, who started this idea that uh, population growth is going to um, be a crisis at some point, and he pre- is when, you know, our resources are, are so-called limited. And so when we are, when we hit a, a population size that is going to obviously uh, supersede the resources that are available, this is going to be a crisis point. And he had estimated at the time that it would be 100 years from uh, when he made that prediction. It was obviously very much off of the mark, but the, the issue too was that he had implemented a very inhumane policies, thinking that it was a crisis that you know needed to be uh, avoided. And people were denied medical care. He was saying that, you know, parents who have more than one child, I think, and uh, pass a certain time of their marriage, uh, that these children should not be given any kind of care from the state because these these children will have little worth and they will be quickly replaced. He said, you know, we should court natural disasters like the plague to have natural curbing of the population and so forth. So, you know, with these people... Uh, poverty was actually a justified thing in the sense that it would shorten the unwanted's life, you know, lifespan of people. The problem with this thinking, which there's several problems with this thinking, but in terms of the scientific problem, not just the moral uh, problem of it, is that it's not true. And his uh, projection is a linear projection. And part of the problem is his uh, estimate of where is the which is the same problem that the limits to growth model uses, where they had a supercomputer as well that was uh, estimating when we would also hit a crisis point that's basically using the Malthusian um, parameters. You you have to have like uh, an idea of like, when are we going to hit a point where the resources are going to run out? You have to have an idea of like, okay, well, what are, what is the amount of resources we have? And that will always be an estimate to begin with. And that's how they make their prediction. But the the issue is that we have innovation. We have innovation and we have change, which has changed our qualitative relationship to resources. So just like the limits to growth, a supercomputer model said that we would run out of like chromium, gold, silver. They also said fossil fuels we would run out of by, you know, 2020. Um that these predictions didn't happen, um, number one, because their estimates of what the resource quantity was was wrong, but also it was their estimation of our relationship qualitatively to the resource. So as like, for instance, mining gets better or our ability to use the resource gets better, the, re- the relationship to that resource depletion changes. But um, almost everything on Earth uh, especially, you know, the most necessary things that we 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 think of, in terms of just naturally food and and water and all this, they're all renewable. But what humans um, do, which is what has been heavily attacked, and I think that it's been done 
consciously. I don't think that it's a mistake that they that they have made th this honest mistake thinking that humans are not able to do this. Um, humans can actually change uh, things for the better. So even these renewable cycles that we see naturally occurring on Earth, we can make those cycles actually more plentiful, including food. You know, where no. most people who eat fruits, right, they these like uh, videos where they show like, oh, the, the natural bountifulness of nature and everything. And then they think of like these wonderful foods that we eat and everything. Almost everything has been engineered by humans over centuries, including the fruits that you eat, watermelon, you know, bananas, uh, eggplant, carrots, all, peach. All of these things have been um, engineered to be much, much better, much more juicy. Yeah, you, ha you have a great uh, illustration yeah. in this article that people should check out, and we'll link to it in the, in the description in the show notes. But you show natural corn used to be like tiny it used to be like a, like a few mil 19 millimeters and now it's like a whole ear of corn that you can like bite off you know watermelon used to be just 50 millimeters and now it's a it's like the bigger than your head just two examples of this but keep going yeah and i mean i think that that's a really nice example right because this was before we had any of the kind of technology uh that might be controversial depending on how it's used i i agree myself but like people have become very anti any any change that is a human change. The thing is, is that the world that we even think about ourselves existing in, that is a world that is somehow going to naturally provide for us, is actually a wor world that we have intervened upon <laughs> for centuries. So it's a, it's it's a it's a, an illusory idea, first of all, of how nature is not actually naturally bountiful for humans. We've made a lot of changes such that, you know, the fruits, the foods that we eat are much more nutritious and much more tasty and last a lot longer um, than they naturally were found in nature at the very beginning. And um, actually, I, I was reading Alex Epstein's book, uh, Fossil Fu Future, which um, is an excellent book, making the argument as well that you know, today we still predominantly, the world predominantly relies on fossil fuels. And I think that mm. people are constantly lied to about this fact yep. that the, here's one thing, like you said, that the world is actually getting better and people are like, what the hell? The world is getting <laughs> better. If you take, he, he took a survey of uh, some, you know, supposedly well-educated, you know, university campus in the United States. And they were asked like, so would you do you think that poverty has been increasing, staying about the same or decreasing uh, significantly in the world? And almost all of them said it was poverty was increasing and a few of them said it's staying the same and like very, very few said it was decreasing. The reality is, which you can find in any graph, like uh, the uh, our world and data, you know, will will have a graph on this as well. The, the world poverty has uh, decreased by like over 80%. We have like about 10% world poverty. And the definition of poverty obviously is still like, it's an extreme um, standard, but like we've yeah. decreased that by a, a huge margin, despite the fact that it seems like there's ongoing war and there's like ongoing problems in, in these parts of the, the world. Poverty has actually been addressed and reduced drastically. And the reason for that has been because of fossil fuel use. 
which is still by far the cheapest energy that people can have. And it's actually not as dirty as people think because our use of it has become more efficient for one. But the the future, obviously, and we'll, we'll get into this hopefully at some uh, point um, in this talk, although we have a lot to go through, is is nuclear, which is has a much higher density and fusion energy, which nobody, you know, hardly ever talks about without like a scoff. This this energy of, you know, nuclear already, it is a, a zero carbon energy, which is never brought up. It's the safest energy, um, even though that also that fact doesn't like to be brought up. And again, if you look at any graph, they will tell you it's the, the safest energy. Um, safer than wind, solar, and and so forth. Uh, solar actually has a lot of problems making it because its uh, its materials are quite toxic, and its waste disposal also is very toxic. And there's no solution right now to what will be a crisis of solar panel waste. But um, it's also uh, e extremely energy dense and cheap. So this nuclear energy is actually a really good thing. And what Europe is doing in terms of like uh, claiming a, a war on not just fossil fuel energy, but on nuclear energy is without an alternative, okay? It's not like renewables can actually replace these energy forms. If they could, then it wouldn't be an issue. But the thing is, is that renewables cannot, and they, they've received a ton of funding. Many of these things have been on the market for several decades, and they're nowhere near uh, capable of replacing fossil fuel energy, not just in terms of cost, but in terms of actual use and versatility in use, which is another thing people don't know is that energy is not just for electricity. You need energy for other types of things, in, in, including industrial processes and stuff like solar and, uh, and wind actually don't generate the kind of energy that you need to even make their own material. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I like to say that uh, renewables are kind of like a fancy hood ornament for for, for gas and oil because they don't actually replace them. They just sit on top of them and then look look fancy and make people feel good about themselves. Well, it's, it's ridiculous yeah. that they're talking about these electric cars, for instance, right? And uh, you, electric cars uh, will uh, almost always have to depend on uh, some kind of fossil fuel plant. Ultimately, it's not the kind of clean energy. You know, clean energy everyone is is talking about. By the way, wind and solar are not actually clean energy anyway. It's they say it's clean energy in the sense that there's no carbon. Which even then, I would say like for the waste disposal, I don't know if that's necessarily true. But there's actually a lot of problems with wind and solar in terms of like the toxicity of. Um, of uh, in terms of building it and, and dealing with the waste. But um, electric cars will have to rely on ultimately some kind of fossil fuel energy for the reliability because wind and solar simply cannot deliver a consistent, reliable energy to anything. Right. So these electric cars are actually predominantly dependent on <laughs> fossil fuel. So it's just a complete charade and uh or um yeah it's like a false projection so what is it ultimately about well it's about this malthusian limits to growth uh world economic forum outlook which is ultimately a political outlook you know you know it's funny to see the degrowthers be very against uh, electric cars now because 
you know, it's a continuation of car culture. And uh, they, even they have, you know, they realize like, oh, wow, in the limits to growth model, planetary boundaries, uh, electric cars, um, they make it, uh, you know, they, they require so many rare earth mineral, minerals to make. Uh, and they're so heavy, they're much heavier than regular cars. Uh, so degrowthers are, are just like, oh, well, either eliminate private car ownership. So, you know, 20 families will share one car. Or we just all live in fifteen-minute cities, and you don't yeah. need you don't need an electric well, car. I think it's a big it's a big charade, and everyone who knows knows that like it's bullshit. The yep. whole renewable energy thing is a big charade, and it's just going to take a matter of time before people catch on to it. And th- that lag time that they have before it becomes to the point where they can't hide it anymore. That's where they're going to try to get away with as much as they can, shutting down nuclear. Uh, getting rid of fossil fuel, um, and they're going to try to push it as quickly as they can before before it just becomes untenable, and people realize, you know, actually, actually, we're gonna, we're killing ourselves by doing this. Um, but just just to back it up a little bit to to um, farming and stuff, I'm, I'm curious um, about your opinion on things like organic farming and GMOs. Do you have? people seem to have very strong feelings about those things these days. So, so what is your take on that from like sort of a scientific um, point of view of like man is improving upon his, upon nature? Um, how does organic farming and GMO, how do they fit into that? Well, yeah, that's the, the sad thing of why I think a lot of people have become anti-technology in general is because uh, unfortunately uh, the way technology is, is used today is uh, largely uh, not to our benefit. But it's not to say that technology, that's the inherent nature of technology, but it's because we live today in, um, I'm talking now in terms of the Western framework, a corrupt uh, system where, you know, the military industrial complex owns the scientific departments and universities at this point. This is the reality of today. It's very political with, you know, who gets grants, who gets funding in terms of research. So it's very difficult as a scientist if you have uh, certain kinds of ideas that are not for a certain political uh, platform, you're not going to get the the funding. You mean so, your science won't get believed? You're, that That's not the science we should believe when they say believe science? <laughs> that, that and also uh, I know a few... Uh, people who have been um, give they're so desperate for funding that they allow themselves to be bought up by um, uh, what was the uh, the the military company I'm forgetting now but they they were bought up and then have to sign a, a non-disclosure agreement right and they own your research so they they can decide to shut it down mm. and you can't talk about it you can't regenerate that research and that's what a lot of Scientists have been um, in the the situation of um, increasingly it's really? it's it's almost it's like really difficult now to get research and that's the problem right because there are so many good ideas and that's part of the reason why I think that we lack optimism and positivity. Then you have companies like Monsanto that is using clearly a genetic modification in a really horrible way, and they have the suicide seeds and all of these types of uh, problems, oh. and who knows what. I don't know else. about the suicide seeds. What is that? Oh, that um, when you plant the uh, the the crop, you have the the crop will not regrow naturally. 
um, because, you know, you can have the, the cycle um, and, you know, some things will regrow the next year. And, um, you know, if you, especially if your weather is fine, I think everything should regrow. Uh, I'm not an expert in this, but anyway, the, the, you should always be able to take seeds regardless, even if it won't naturally regrow, you can take the seeds from whatever crop you've done and can then take those seeds and replant it the next year. What Monsanto has done is said that, um, is made it su such that the crop will die. And there are no seeds and you have to buy you have to repurchase your, your seeds again from them. So you're completely, right. you, you don't have any independence in your ability to grow. So it's not, so it's not that they're gem genetically modified, that that's yeah, the they're, they're bad. Yeah, they're, they're genetically modified to, to not produce uh, seeds. It's that they're, they're using the technology in a way to hurt humanity, right? Yeah. 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 So cause gen, gen, Technically, what we've done with fruits to make them better has been a form of genetic modification before we had the ability to even know what, you know, the genetic domain was, right? Right. So these kinds of changes that we've made centuries ago um, were um, in that domain of genetic modification. So it's clear, you know, nobody can eat anything that technically hasn't been genetically modified from that standpoint. Yeah. Sense that we have changed the domain of food and agriculture over centuries of agriculture's, uh, you know, intervention into into this. So it's fine from that standpoint. And just because it's done in a lab doesn't mean that all of a sudden it's like bad. You know, it's like the same idea with radiation. It's like, OK, a nuclear plant plant has a radiation. That's bad. But then like the hot springs and the beaches that have radiation. Yep. Oh, no, that's good radiation because it's like natural radiation. That makes yep. no sense. <laughs> it's well, radiation, you know. It's just... Yeah, Fo Fox was giving a talk about uh, energy in New York State uh, a couple weekends ago. And, uh, you know, it was at a, a bar. And somebody was asking about, you know, it's a very prominent thing down here with Indian Point Nuclear that uh, unfortunately... You know, the Malthusians, one, they, they're decommissioning the plant and they have all this titration, uh, uh, titrated water left over that they, they're going to release into the Hudson River. And people, you know, R Riverkeeper and all the environmentalists have incited a panic saying that, oh, they're going to poison our river with this radiation. And so somebody asked about that and they were holding a beer and the beer that they were holding had more radiation in it than an entire gallon of titrated water. That <laughs> you could put your mouth on Indian Point and drink the titrated water, and you would get less radiation than from one beer. Yeah, crazy. Yeah, and like in uh, my paper too, there was that really wonderful graphic on bananas, right? And yeah. that like fifty million bananas is. Uh, the equivalent of five million microsieverts. So, yeah. if you were to say five million microsieverts has been dumped into the ocean, people would freak out. And then yeah. if you say fifty million bananas, they'd be like, "Oh, <laughs> well, that's too bad." But yeah, or going on one airplane ride. If you go on an airplane ride, you know people are like, "Oh, pregnant women and children are going to get poisoned by the nuclear plant." If you mm -hmm. if you let a child or a pregnant woman go on an airplane. You know, apparently you're you're dooming them. You know, it's it's uh, yeah. crazy. Yeah. yeah the, well, the, again, the graphic that uh, another graphic was uh, saying um, <laughs> it's equivalent to zero point nine bananas if you live fifteen miles from a nuclear plant, 
and 400 bananas if you fly from New York to LA in terms of uh, radiation. So 40 microsieverts to fly from New York to Los Angeles and 0.09 microsieverts if you live 15 miles from a nuclear plant. So yeah, I... people just don't understand the world yeah. that we live in and that radiation is not a bad thing. We have background radiation. We actually need radiation to ha be healthy. <laughs> Yeah, I, I like measuring everything in terms of bananas. <laughs> yeah, you know, so our audience is already like, we're super pro-nuclear podcast. So I want to touch on some of these other items, actually, that you say here, because there's a ton of really good stuff in this in this essay. Um, so you talk about space as a factor, um, how there's this idea that we're taking up all this space, and that's, that's nonsense. Um, I also love this idea... Uh, you talk about man-made forests, and I thought that is the coolest thing because it's framed as we can actually make forests that are optimized uh, with our own our own touch, our own man-made touch. Um, whereas here in the West, we're sort of trained to think that the virgin forest, the untouched virgin forest is the ideal, but actually we can optimize forests as well. Um, so do, do you want to talk a little bit about the man-made forests in, in India and China? Uh, yeah, sure. So, uh, quickly just on like the amount of space, I, I, I was also shocked that, uh, for instance, you can fit approximately because now the world population is a bit, oh yeah, according to this, uh, 7.4 billion, you can fit into Texas, which is about 170 million uh, acres and that you could put each person you'd have a population density of 27,000 people per squirrel square mile which is about um, a 30 by 33 by 33 uh, inch plot of land per person so that's enough uh, space to fit a townhouse for every person on that's the planet like, that's a decent that's a decent amount of space to lego family zoning a 33 foot by 33 foot half. like that's actually a good amount of space probably have a little lawn too yeah so this isn't even <laughs> like crowding people that much yeah in this uh, experiment yeah exactly i mean like obviously i'm not saying that we should you know be that close together but the fact that we can have the entire world population fit into texas and in, in such a humane you know way shows that we really don't have a limit of physical space and then um, if you look at uh, the charts showing um, our agricultural production, it ha actually has been increasing. And in the areas like the United States, I think it has been kind of plateauing, but that again is a, a political issue. The farmers in the United States have been um, heavily under uh, attack uh, through policies and it's making it very difficult for them to uh, sustain themselves financially. So that yep. has nothing to do with our ability to actually grow food. But um, if you look at China and Brazil especially, they're doing great in terms of uh, increasing food production. But overall, everything is on an upward trend except perhaps <laughs> the United States. And then agricultural land per capita has also decreased uh, for all countries, uh, all areas. And that's according to our world and uh, data. And if you if you look at the world population increase, so from 1960 to 1980, we've had about 1.4 billion increase. From 1980 to 2000, again a 1.7 billion uh, increase, and then to today, it's again a 1.7 billion increase. So we've been able to still increase our uh, food production, 
decrease our land use. So those are very positive um, statistics. And that's not even us doing things as efficiently as we could if we actually got our shit together. Um, and so the lack of resources is really in localized regions. And uh, that is, again, uh, more of a political and economic uh, situation. It has nothing to do with, you know, natural scarcity or uh, a limit to, to resource or uh, of space or ability to produce food. Um, so in the case of uh, China and India building forests, you know, I did a, a presentation actually on um, the greening of deserts. And I thought like, wow, I was like, I was thinking this title should be like super positive. Like people should be really excited. We can like green deserts. And I actually had some people after the presentation ask me like, well, what about the desert ecosystem? Okay. And it was like. Gaia <laughs> worshiper was... detected. <laughs> and it was like, well, hold on a second, because you can't win. Like the way that your 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 theory is working at this point, I don't even understand how <laughs> it makes any sense. Because if you're worried that the world is getting hotter, clearly you don't want more desert area. And if you want the less CO2, trees are going to consume that CO2. If you want more water, the trees are going to keep the water in. If you want more biodiversity, that's also going to happen if you green areas. You're killing the scorpions. Yeah, you have and, to be careful. These people are allergic to logic. Well, you know... Uh, wait, wait, I hold on. And if oh, you want ahead. to decrease the hurricanes, <laughs> the number of hurricanes that hit the eastern coast of the United States, which has been shown to largely come from the hot air moving over the Sahara, which is like what, which makes up half of the, the land mass of the world desert. The Sahara is massive. Yeah. So all this hot air that moves over the Sahara desert that then hits the cold air of the Atlantic and then hits the Eastern coast, that's what is causing most of the hurricane activity. So we would also decrease, um, you know, the storm presence, you know, in this area. And like this person was like, okay, but like we we need to protect, you know, the desert ecosystem, which is actually much more complex than we thought. And it's like, but aren't you blaming humans for having created the desert? But that's the other th thing, right? This is the this is the ultimate theme. We can only be blamed, which, by the way, we are not the reason why the Sahara Desert exists. There's all of the water is underneath the Sahara Desert. And it's not really clear how this happened. The Sahara Desert used to be actually very green and all of the water is underneath right now. And I'm sure that we can find a, a way to bring that water back up. But we're not to blame for that. But anyway, they're going to, of course, blame us for the Sahara Desert, the humans. And then we're not allowed to fix the problem either. Because how yeah. dare a yeah. dirty human try to fix a problem of nature? It, it's just like you yeah. can't do anything. You know, and I'd much rather um, uh, green a desert than put a solar farm on it. Right. <laughs> I have seen, you know, the only time I support this uh, check the biodiversity argument for the desert is if they're proposing a solar farm. And then I want to talk about the noble <laughs> scorpion and the uh, the endangered snakes and stuff like that <laughs> to block the solar farm oh, that's but right then block the solar farm and then plant trees and turn it into a jungle yeah yeah it's like how is it that having massive land use for solar panels isn't going to uh increase the temperature nope. <laughs> surface temperature by quite check. a bit nope fact check uh we can do farming underneath the solar panel there's a specific <laughs> kind of sheep right uh, oh 
they can't. I was reading about it. It's called agrivoltaics, and it's basically this giant cope by the solar industry to say like, oh, we're actually not going to destroy farmland. And it's like the only animal you can have is uh, sheep under solar panels because goats will jump up and destroy the solar panels. <laughs> Cows are too big. You know so, how the ruling elite love sheep. Yeah. <laughs> they love you know, sheep. I, I, I they have hate a hard cows, time they love sheep. <laughs> I have a hard yeah. time believing that that's actually going to work out. But yeah, for China and India, they have um, increased uh, the, the number of, of forests that they have by quite a bit. Um, and NASA even, you know, has uh, recognized this and you can even see a nice, you know, satellite uh, map that they have on the NASA site that's showcasing this. And um, probably one of the most uh, uh, successful uh, examples of China greening a desert is the Loess Plateau, which is so striking when you look at it on the internet, the before and the after pictures. Everyone thought that uh, like people were really mocking China when they were trying to do this, saying like they have no idea what they're doing. They're planting, you know, too much of like one kind of, uh, you know, tree or shrub or whatever, and it's going to be a complete disaster. And it's like it looks fantastic. It's really? it's truly amazing. And uh, just goes to show that we we can have like China and India are like one of the most densely populated countries in the world. And yet they also have the most green this point because of man-made intervention to to grow those forests and i'm sure they're not suffering from forest fires as well because they're actually properly managing their forests so there you go it's almost like human beings make make the planet better <laughs> weird how that works no isn't it um so that's her heretic speak i mean speech. A there's so many good bullet points in here. If if people have eco-anxiety, I'm just going to send them this this article, right? I'm going to say, believe this science. Um, what else do we have here? There, You talk about CO2 generators and greenhouses, which is, I think, a great argument against this idea that CO2 is killing us because plants love it. Why else would there be CO2 generators and greenhouses, <laughs> right? Um Let's see, what else do we have here? If uh, the social progress index is undoubtedly linked to energy production of a country and nuclear fission is safe, safe and clean, why is there a suppression of nuclear power when it has the capability of massively increasing the standard of living throughout the world, which is from your essay. And you bring up um, that this is really um, a ploy, a plot, right, against industrial growth. Um, and that in, in order to move to this next phase, we need an international cooperation and collaboration. Um, and that the reason we lack nuclear power uh, is for no other reason than political. Uh, it's not because it's too expensive or too hard to build or there's not enough time or it's too dangerous. All these excuses are all bullshit, right? It's, it's all political, right? Yeah, and... Um... I think that if we had a better idea of the the kind of universe we we live in, um, we would understand that that things like nuclear energy are are actually, uh, I think, a very natural thing for us to be doing. Um, and I mean, that's what how true science works, right? So you can define like what is bad science, you know, or evil scientists kind of you know work which is that anything that goes against um, natural processes um, 
will be a bad uh, approach to science or technology. And anything that goes along with um, what is a natural, um, you know, lawful process, um, that is something that is is uh, that should be used and that is used for the good. And so part of this problem is that we've almost had a religious uh, viewpoint of humans just being bad by our very nature to want to prosper, to want to to grow, to want to um, use industry, to use, you know, tools to make um, things always better, which actually also affects the world around us. But we can do it in a qual qualitatively good way. It doesn't have to be a, a destructive uh, way. And so by understanding even just like um, how galactic processes works, uh, work, uh, how the, the solar, uh, you know, radiation works with us and, and getting this better understanding, we, we can, I, I think, start to think of these things as not something, um, you know, scary or, um, you know, evil. Like, it's very odd that like radiation has this viewpoint, right? Like, Radiation is found everywhere, as we were we were talking. So why this idea that radiation is something inherently evil? So that you know these nuclear plants. One of the biggest arguments is like the radioactive waste, which is very minimal for one. We have a technology that can actually deal with that waste now. At this point, the breeder reactors. Um, we just need more of those types of of things. But the the real problem is that humans cannot are not allowed to create anything that will have long-term consequences anymore that's what has been forbidden that's what the european union's policies with fit for 55 and all of this this is what they want and um it's ultimately you know putting us in a mind frame where we view ourselves as um feudalistic peasants rather than people who are empowered, creative, sovereign, good individuals that can always apply solutions to problems and they can make things better. That's yeah. that's an empowered, strong view of your viewpoint of yourself versus someone who like I, I watched uh, Planet of the the Humans and it was Michael very Moore. Yeah. Yeah, it was very sad because like he's bringing up a, a lot of good points about like how the we've been lied to uh, yeah. with all of the promises of the renewables, but he doesn't actually look into what is the reality of the fossil fuel energy, what ha fossil fuel energy has done to uplift the world. You know how most people were uh, using for energy was dung. Yeah, they were like burning in their like houses. And it's like incredibly toxic or even wood. If you burn wood in your house, it's, that's not uh, good to be breathing in all of the time. And so people don't even have a concept of like people were using before the, oh, heaven forbid, you know, dirty fossil fuels, which have shown that they don't actually have the the kind of pollution that they they did during, you know, the 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 industrial age in Britain, you know, back in the day when, you know, everything was like covered in uh black yeah. soot or whatever but um that's the thing is that he couldn't go there because it was already at that it was like a forbidden terrain and so the conclusion from planet of the humans is to basically accept that we don't have a place here on earth 
Yeah, it ended up having kind of a Malthusian bend of bend very, very Malthusian. You know, I'll yeah. see your Planet of the Humans. I'll raise you how to blow up a pipeline. Uh, <laughs> yeah. One one of our uh, Patreon perks is that uh, we do movie nights in our Discord sometimes. So we watched uh, Planet or um, How to Blow Up a Pipeline, and it was it was so uh, so ham fisted and tacky that they wanted to make a movie where the eco terrorists are actually the good guys. <laughs> and it was just insane how these people, there, there was no nuance whatsoever to the idea that they're destroying people's livelihoods. They're uh, doing a lot of damage you know, to the earth uh, by unleashing all this methane, by blowing up a pipeline. Um, you know, the, well, yeah, the, the environmentalists were, were, were cheering the bombing of the Nord Stream pipeline, even though that released a whole bunch of... Uh add chemicals into the into the water so yeah it, yeah it's about being hypocrites it's weird <laughs> it's an ideological viewpoint and they will get upset if you try to prove to them that humans can actually be good yeah very odd like there's an example actually from uh again uh alex epstein's book where some scientists he cited uh in british columbia he was able to figure out how to grow um a lot more algae in the Pacific Ocean. Um, so it's like a big algae farm such that like not only did it replenish uh, the the salmon um, by way more than it was before even uh, the certain date. Uh, sorry, I don't know the details, details of this. And but to the point where like a whole bunch of ocean life was flocking to this uh, really successful algae farm, including whales. And uh, Naomi Klein had made a statement saying like, you know, I, I, I was on a, some kind of cruise, you know, watching <laughs> these whales. And I was thinking at first, like, you know, what a wonderful sight. But then, you know, it dawned on me that all of this was being shaped by wow. human, you know, like yeah. human, human intervention. And that somehow that made the whole thing sick to her, that all of these animals were going to a location where they would have a, a lots of food to eat. It was somehow just disgusting and, you know, abominable because uh, a human had, had uh, created that situation. Yeah. And it's like, at this point, you have to acknowledge that you have an issue with humans themselves. And then you have to wonder with these people, especially Naomi Klein. I'm sure she lives a very comfortable lifestyle. How do you, how do you justify enforcing this viewpoint, which is going to... Let's be realistic here. These policies that want to eliminate fossil fuels by 2030, according to the lunacy of Europe. Anyway, that's for Europe, but they want it for the rest of the world. And it's going to affect the rest of the world, what Europe does anyway. That's going to result in uh, people dying. Yeah. Um, people are just not they're They're acting like it's just like a consumer choice. Like, oh, I can pick box a of cereal or box b of cereal it's not yeah. that <laughs> yeah no they it's malthusianism with extra steps and they're pushing that uh by 2030 elimination of fossil fuels here in new york too they're they're mm -hmm. trying they're trying to get rid of fossil fuels here wow. in new york being pushed by the democratic socialists of america are leading that charge um but you know alex you bring up this point about them the environmentalists being hypocritical and we can say that I think at a surface level, but and and let me know if you agree with this, Cynthia. I think that ultimately they're not hypocritical because it's not that they're 
and being hypocritical. It's that they're not hide, they're not showing what their actual motivation is. And their, mm -hmm. their actual motivation is based off of this idea that human beings are a virus on the planet. Mm -hmm. And once you, once you recognize that as the underlying thesis of their, their actions and their motivations, then all of a sudden they're all their, their actions make sense and they don't seem hypocritical at all. It's like, oh, okay, this is what you're going for. And I think this is where people who are opposed to environmentalists and they say, oh, they're such hypocrites and why are they doing this? They don't even, they don't even yeah. follow their own rules. Still flying a plane. And they're still flying on a plane. <laughs> Renewables don't actually work. Why are they pushing for them? They're actually environmentally terrible. Well, it's not really about uh, the environment. It's about humanity. It's about a, the view of man that, that, that human beings are, are, are evil and bad and and shouldn't be here and are a virus on the planet. I th would you agree with that, Cynthia? Uh, yes, and I think that there's two. I guess you can say, um, uh, as Matt would say, flavors. I hate saying that expression, but yeah, two flavors <laughs> of it. In the sense that um, you have uh, the the kind of more common person's interpretation of this, which I think is associated with. Um, a real existential crisis. I think that these people are are going through, um, you know, a lot of depression uh, because they can't see anything good in in the world with them situated in it and playing a role in that. And I think that like the the best that they can do is to limit the destruction of their own species. Like that's the outlook that they have, which is a very um, sad outlook if you believe that nothing good can come of your own kind and the best you can do is to limit uh, or even sabotage your own kind yeah. then you have like the global elite type of you know way of thinking about this such as like the world economic forum the club of rome limits to growth idea which is that yeah they're just simply lying to you because they want you to be disempowered so that first grouping I was talking about, that is a disempowered grouping. If you think that nothing, you cannot accomplish anything good and you cannot, you know, make anything better, you cannot provide solutions, you cannot change a situation for the better, that is a disempowered outlook that you have. And it's in the benefit of the people who want to uh, rule in such a way that they don't want to have uh, prosperity for all um, because they also have a religious belief, which I'll get into. It, it, serves, it services them the best if you want yourself to commit suicide. Yeah. It, like, it makes their lives easier. And their religious viewpoint is also tied to something that is also uh, very uh, dark about what defines our human nature that but they tend to you know have it more contaminated with the people who um deserve more and the people who don't deserve more yeah. right but they ultimately think that we do live in a world where you cannot trust the masses and they think of the you know the masses as like you know i guess scary swarming of ants or whatever that will consume everything that they that they touch you can't trust the masses to be responsible um, you have to manage the masses. That's one uh, part of it. But also they really do, they're not um, loving, creative people. So if you don't have a loving, creative outlook 
yourself, you're going to be very cynical of what are positive possibilities in the future. And so unfortunately, you know, people who are very paranoid and who have this outlook, they've been working very hard at, you know, trying to enforce policy. Whereas I think some of the better people, um, they've uh, been a bit naive on um, some of this and they, you know, they just get maybe very excited over their little project here and there, but we're really lacking um, in the West anyway, uh, people who who understand the top-down consequences of, of these policies. But, you know, both viewpoints, the, the, you know, the world economic type of viewpoint and then the more <clears throat> common type, they're both tragic. Yeah. Um, and the people who think this way, including a Harari, who himself can't even really explain why he is useful. <laughs> you know, he can't explain why anyone is useful in the world. It's a, it's not a happy disposition. And I think that they ultimately, they are, these people are ultimately tools to other people. Um, and if you look at that kind of a world, it's like, I mean, Harari himself has said, like, how do you know what someone by their sexual disposition and what they desire. That shows like what a low person Harari is, that that's like what defines what you're thinking yeah. is like what you're, what makes you horny basically. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's a very visceral kind of, Oh, we're just feeling creatures. We're not anything higher than we're just a uh, sense sensorious creatures. We're just sort but yeah, we're, we, we have a human brain with, that can come up with ideas and creative thoughts and, and um, yeah, that's what separates us from the animals, right? I think I'll I'll add a note because since you have a, a very nuclear friendly audience, they should get very excited about uh, uh, nuclear fusion. And I think that one of the brightest points to what we can we can do in the future, and like we've already discussed, like there's enough space, we have the capability to produce food, and we don't have to rely. Like the whole genetic modification thing um, that's being enforced with a, an evil intention, um, you know, that doesn't like that's what Europe is also like right now trying to enforce with uh, taking away the fertilizers and all this and saying we don't need to do that because of gen genetic modification. Yeah. We have naturally where we're at right now with the old techniques, the capability to um, produce enough healthy um, abundant food for everybody. We don't need uh, as much land area. And so, and we're able to green deserts, we're able to um, affect ecosystems in a way that is actually a, a positive um, contribution. And then for nuclear fusion, the plasma torch, we have the capability of actually changing the domain of material in in general so like not only will we be able to now reprocess any kind of uh material including waste so there will be no more landfills and you can reduce it to its elemental components um you can rebuild anything you want using this technology including improved uh materials like steel a stronger steel than we're capable of uh, creating right now and uh, you don't have to do mining processes uh, as much as well with this sort of technology because you can reduce the waste into its elemental forms. So it's really now a much more harmonious relationship that we have to 
the material that we're using on Earth. And we're, again, um, making an upshift in the quality of what we are, we are making through um, the use of a, of a fusion plasma torch. And the plasma torch already exists um, through fission, but it's uh, a lot more expensive because of its high demand of uh, electricity. Um, going to be much more accessible commercially with uh, fusion energy, which is totally possible. I, I believe that China will probably be the one to first um, succeed in the fusion energy endeavor because they actually want to. And, um, you know, the Lawrence Livermore, uh, excuse me, school in the United States is only, you know, somewhat catching up, but it's not in a very honest fashion because they work for the military industrial complex. They don't really care about making this uh, something that's commercially available. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the the plasma torch because that was on my list for sure. And that's something I don't know a whole lot about. But the idea of a of a torch that basically incinerates garbage um, is amazing to me because um, I think one of the few things that resonates that still resonates with me uh, from the environmental movement that they use to scare people is showing like giant landfills all the time. And sometimes mm -hmm. I feel guilty throwing out my garbage every week and be like, Oh, I'm producing all this waste and where is it going? And I, you know, um, so that's one of the few things where I'm like, Oh my God, that's like, that's like game changer, you know, it, and, mm -hmm. and it, it, it shit reshifts everything because to think that, Oh, we're just here. We're just using things up and, and mm -hmm. shitting things out and creating waste. Actually, <laughs> no, we could actually, change fundamentally change the idea of garbage in the future to the point where we're the it's the ultimate recycling yeah, <laughs> and we can... environmentalism it's the ultimate recycling is this plasma torch <laughs> which like you said already exists it's not it sounds science fiction because nobody mm -hmm. hears about it in the u.s and it sounds like made up but it already exists and it, it the only way it can exist commercially as you're saying is if we have more energy and we need more energy with nuclear power and then the this is the step these are the steps this is the future and then we just have to step into it <laughs> and I, you know to go back to something else you said about how people become very sad and depressed about where the world is going and and then um ultimately um cynical about human beings uh what i for me i think one of the main things that helped me sort of see the world differently and say no humanity has a big bright future uh regardless of what's happening here in the west is looking at countries like russia and china which are bringing the world into a new era and and here in the yeah. west especially in the united states we're so used to being number one number one but we're not number one anymore and i think that's okay i'm ready for america to take a step back and and I think it's imperative not only for people to understand the real science, which is what we're talking about today, but to understand geopolitically that Russia and China are not enemies of the American people. They're enemies of the parasites that rule over us and that are holding us back. And that the sooner we recognize that they are our friends um, and that they want to collaborate with us, uh, the quicker we can get to that future that, that we that we're talking about today yeah i completely agree and um that's i mean if if people could make that shift it would be 
everything. And I would make another point um, as well that, you know, the Cold War doctrine has been going on for about 77 years now. And um, that's another thing that, you know, I, I do quite a bit of research on uh, all of the the things that have happened using the justification of Cold War to take away the civil liberties and the press freedoms of people, including McCarthyism, COINTELPRO's attack on the civil rights movement, um, the Vietnam War that never had to happen, which was justified by the RAND Corporation, which is continuing to justify a war with China now, that yep. same RAND Corporation. Um, but people have to realize that the United States has been in a kind of like, you know, war emergency act for 77 years. And that's why your constitution, which, you know, I'm from Canada, we don't actually have as many rights as, as Americans do in the sense of like constitutional rights and uh, our, our legal system as well. But the way that they're um, circumventing those rights that you you have, um, which made the United States actually quite unique and 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 stood out, is that they're justifying that your rights come secondary to national security. So it's in their best interest to always be pumping this uh, this distrust of Russia and China. The other, of course, uh, aspect to that is if there was economic partnership it would be a lot harder for this um, this vision um, to succeed of a kind of world economic forum, you know, Bill Gates, one world government thing. I'm not saying that these are like the highest players in it, but, you know, that gives you the kind of eye coloring the idea. Whereas um, what is presently governing Russia and China, it is, it is anti-Malthusian. And even India uh, has increasingly um, been pushing back on these kinds of policies. You know, India at the Davos conference, they they said outright, you know that we cannot um, fight for our people using simply energy. And so we will use energy that can adequately provide for our people. And that's that. It was a very polite way of saying we are not for a Malthusian policy. And finally, you know, I think I think India was held back so much um, for a long time, um, you know, by by the uh, the G seven countries. You know, there was a big movement to only provide India with appropriate technology, um, limiting the amount of intensification that they had. Um, uh, you know, there's a lot of a lot of history in America of blocking uh, uranium from going to India so they can't become a nuclear power country. Um, so it's, it's great to hear that, you know, pe people there and the leaders are uh, starting to push back against all that. I'm optimistic. It sounds like you guys are also optimistic. And uh, we just have to be, I think, very clear on um, what policies are, actually have as a an intention, ultimately. And, um, you know, we know that our capability or our potential can be for the good, but it is a decision that we have to make to fight for as well. You've been listening to the Space Gaming Podcast. I'm your host, Fox, here with Alex. 
And today, our guest is Cynthia Chung, who is the president of the Rising Tide Foundation and a writer at Strategic Culture Foundation. She also has a Substack. You can find CynthiaChung.substack.com. Cynthia, uh, what else do you want to plug today? And also, thank you for joining us. Uh, thanks again, too. That was a great discussion. I I actually would plug uh, my husband, Matthew Eretz paper, because I think it just covers a lot of um, stuff we were talking about today called The Roots of Modern Eco-Terrorism from NK Ultra and the Unabomber to Maurice Strong and Yuval Harari. I think it's a, a very interesting um, article. Yeah, that sounds awesome. Everybody should read. That sounds awesome. Yeah, we got to get Matt on here. He's He's been on my live stream before, but we got to get him on the show too. You guys are, are a power team. I love it. I we're, we're so in line with like everything that you're doing. It's so hard to find people who are pro-Russia, pro-China, and pro-nuclear and anti-Malthusian. So it's really, it's really awesome to have you on. Space Commune is a media project by two upstate New Yorkers seeking an alternative to the degrowth and deindustrialization paradigm being thrust upon us by the Great Reset Agenda. We love our country, the United States of America, and take inspiration from our revolutionary founding. We want win-win cooperation with Russia and China in developing the world economy for all of humanity and to make America great again. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider joining our Patreon. We also make other content such as documentaries on YouTube and streaming and essays you can find on our website at spacecommune.com. 